This is Master Cinema Cast. My name's Tom Jennings. And I'm Joachim Please. And joining us today, we have a very special guest in the form of Rudy Obias from the Autors Cast. Thank you very much for coming aboard with us today, Rudy. Thank you for having me. Um, it's, uh, I, I think we normally kind of do sections to kind of talk about news, but um, there's not really much to sort of go through, is there? Uh, can... No, it's only been a week since we last recorded and nothing new has happened. So, um, The only kind of thrilling piece of news I can report on is that I accidentally ordered two copies of Lonotte. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> I've, I've literally just got two things then saying um, they've both been dispatched. So um, perhaps we do a competition and give one away because I really can't be bothered yeah. going through the uh, rigmarole of sending them back to um, Amazon. I received a free copy of um, the Unfemme Marie uh, film, Spine Number 4, I think, um, as a gift from Master of Cinema when I ordered, uh, I think it was uh, three Blu-rays or something. Uh, and I already owned it, so I think we can have two competitions, but uh, we'll need to find out the details. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll work something out between us and um, uh, sort something out. But um, with that in mind, um, I suppose what we're going to do, what we wouldn't normally do when we have guests, is talk a little bit about um, them and what they do. So, Rudy, um, I first came across you when you were uh, hosting the Criterion cast, which was obviously yeah, pretty brilliant podcast. It is a pretty brilliant podcast. And then you went off and did the Auteurs cast. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about kind of the Auteurs cast and kind of what you were kind of setting out to do with that? Um, okay, well, I, I started the Criterion cast back in 2009, and I had a difference of opinion with with the um, <laughs> with the person who's running it right now, and so I, I left on uh, bad terms, I might add, and I started my own podcast because I, I I needed my own I needed I still needed an outlet to talk about movies uh, on the internet, so I started a, a like-minded podcast like the Criterion cast with the auteur cast and what we do I do it with Wes Anthony who was uh, a previous guest of yours I believe he was on um, the, te- the your touch of evil episode I believe he was yep the, the Orson Welles film and uh, what what we do we we pick a filmmaker and then we go through their filmography uh, in chronological order devoting one episode to one of their movies so uh, our episodes run between 45 minutes to an hour and we don't have any news we don't have any what we're watching right now all we do is uh, we introduce ourselves and then we just jump into the movie as if we're having uh, just a casual conversation about it uh, currently we are doing a series on the james bond series actually uh, we, we started a series on the james bond films about a year ago where we just talked about the sean connery era of james bond films and right now we're doing a, a series on the roger moore era of james bond and it's quite different from where it started uh, <laughs> uh, with the sean connery films yeah, I mean, actually, just to, I mean, I've been on my other podcast, Twenty Four Frames, I've been doing a uh, Bond retrospective, and um, it's. Uh, I, I mean, I started about two years ago, and it has been a bit of a struggle sometimes because um, it, I, I think sometimes best with Bond, just give it a little bit of time before you watch them back to back to back because they do tend to kind of get a little bit repetitive. I've found, and I've oh, just totally. got, I've just got to Dalton, and um, my my childhood was um, the Dalton films. I used to absolutely love them, and I have a strange feeling they're not going to quite hold up now and it's sort of putting me off same kind of thing i had with the goonies when i went back to that i was like (laughs) (laughs) yeah the goonies the goonies is definitely a movie that i loved in my childhood but i actually i revisited that film a couple years ago and i thought to myself man this is not a very good movie if i was an adult watching this movie back then i probably wouldn't like it at all there's just it's 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 that kind of movie is only good for nostalgia purposes but when Hmm. you just look at it as an adult or uh, divorce from your nostalgia view it's it's not a very good one 
And, and I'm saying that going through the James Bond films, this is the first time that I'm actually watching the James Bond movies in my entire life. I don't know how I went through my whole life loving movies and not watching a single James Bond film. But uh, so going through these movies, I'm going through it with fresh eyes and they're definitely a lot of tropes. They're definitely this, the same type of formula in and in and out, which is somewhat comforting uh, when you get into the movies, but I don't know. After I, I believe I've watched, I've watched all the Roger Moore films. I'm up to Timothy Dalton, some like up to 1985 or 87, um, and I, I actually quite like the James Bond series. I, I can see why people uh, don't like the Roger Moore era in, in comparison to uh, everything else. But for right now, I, I think that the the James Bond series of films are, are pretty important in, in terms of um, global cinema. I mean, it, it's a franchise that's been going on for more than 50 years, and I, I don't think any other franchise has that kind of longevity today. No, I mean, I, th- I think the thing about James Bond is, is like, I mean, going back to what you're saying about reassuring, it's like when everyone wants to go and watch Skyfall and was coming up, I'm literally going absolutely mental over it. Um, I, I don't think genuinely any, anyone went in there really expecting anything different. I don't think Skyfall does anything different, really, you know, cataclysmically different from any of the other films. But there is that sort of sense where a good story, when you say, when you tell it well, it, you can kind of forgive the fact that you've seen it several, several times before. And I think that's what I found about the Bond films is that the ones I don't like, like Diamonds of Forever, and um, I think what was the other stupid uh, more one, the one with the boat that eats submarines. Um, oh god, what was it? I can't remember what one. Tomorrow it. never dies. No, no, no. This is the Roger Moore one. Um, it's got the best Bond song. Nobody, nobody does it better by Carly Simons. The the, the spy who loved me. Yeah, isn't it? I, I, I was watching that and I thought this is one of the worst things I've ever seen. But <laughs> when, I, when when I see when I see something like um, uh, You Only Live Twice, which is essentially the same story, I, 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 I completely ignore the fact that I've you know I've, I've, I've seen it all before. And it's all very repetitive, but Bonds like that. I find it's sort of. You, you, the, the good ones don't really do anything new they just tend to do it a little bit better than the worst ones I mean A View to a Kill was the last one I watched and that, that, I think that's what's put me off doing it because that film is <laughs> truly awful Bond's a paedophile in that film <laughs> I mean, well, it, it, I mean yeah. it, it's, it's got the isn't that the one with the Duran Duran yeah, song yeah great song yeah. and that's a I great mean, song yeah yeah uh, and I mean, I got, um, I got the, the Blu-ray box set for Christmas, and I, th- I used to love that film. Again, it was one of those ones as a, as a kid I was obsessed with, and I went back to it. And Grace Kelly just scares the shit out of me, and, and I was just like, this film is just totally great. And then Bond, like you say, he's in his sixties or something like that, and that girl he's with, who just cannot act for shit, and I was just watching <laughs> this film like, this is just torturous to get through. It, it's quite. You well, know. you have uh, Christopher Walken in that, uh, chewing oh chewing the scenery like like no other. Like, I love when he's playing a villain. You, you can, especially when he is really hamming it up, going over the top. You could just tell. And, and watching A View to a Kill, I just recently watched it. And I'm thinking to myself, when you have a villain who's happy to be a villain and is glad to be a villain and is having fun with it, you're kind of having fun with him too, you know, as he's killing all of his men with a machine well, I gun. Well, I'll tell you what, the, the, going back to his men, though, this is what I can't get. They moan and bitch like they're kind of like legitimate unionized workers. When they they know what they're doing. They're building this sort of like massive bomb thing to destroy loads of people, and they're whining and bitching about like their working conditions and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, you you guys work for this guy. You know he's a megalomaniac. <laughs> you know all that all that dynamite you're putting down a kind of you know a, a, a fault in the earth. You can't think, oh, this is you know got some sort of environmental purpose that's going to be benefit anyone. 
And I've just watched this film. I thought, what, what, what am I watching? I mean, it does have its moments of you know, vague humour when he's in the uh, hot air balloon and that guy says he's going to... Um, he, he decides he can't go on with it and then uh, they kind of promptly <laughs> throw him out the, uh, the hot air balloon. He says, does anyone else want to drop out? It has little moments like that, but... Um, Oh man, it, yeah, it is. A, it is an appalling Bond. I mean, I, I think even Rob... and the Bond girl is probably the worst Bond girl. Yeah. I feel. Oh, I mean, she's just, just it's just inane. I think. Well, I mean, I mean, going with the 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 workers thing, the construction workers, it goes back to that thing in Clerks, <laughs> if you remember that uh, yeah. in two thousand in ninety four, where they had the, the the construction workers on the Death Star. You know, like are are, are they part of the the evil that is the Empire, or are they just doing a job? Independent contractors, I think it was decided, weren't they? Uh, no, uh, yeah, it was. It was. A, it's a very, very um, it, it, almost amusing um, film to watch. And um, yeah, like I said, I was sort of watching it fr- with fresh eyes in my uh, adult years, thinking, "Dear God, I'd like to go back to the eleven-year-old me and give him a slap and tell me this film's crap and to not watch it constantly on repeat." But, but and, and kind of work-wise as well, Rudy. I mean, you're. You, am I right in thinking? You're, I mean, are you still writing uh, for a living with film? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm a I'm a professional uh, film blogger, in in uh, living in New York City, which means I, I write quite a bit to make ends meet. Uh, my <laughs> rent my rent is uh, pretty. Exp- I don't know if you guys know this, but New York City is pretty expensive. But uh, I, I managed to get the the job done month after month uh i i currently write for a science fiction website called giant freaking robot where i uh, write about anything and everything science fiction whether that be movie tv or or books uh, short stories short films anything that's science fiction and i also write for um the the website mentalfloss.com which is like factoids quizzes uh brain teasers uh type of website so uh, it, it, it was a, a little hard getting into writing professionally uh, while living day to day in New York City, but you know somehow I managed to do it. I don't know how I managed to do it. I, I think about it as like kind of dumb luck. Some people ask me how do I become a, a film blogger, a professional film blogger, and I, I think to myself, how did I do this? I, I think I just really fell into it where. I knew the right people. Uh, I have a great interest in movies, and I, I think I'm a good enough writer. I don't think I'm a very, I don't think I'm a great writer or a good writer. I think I'm a good enough writer, um, and I just managed just to work hard and be nice to people, and I ended up getting jobs. Um, I'm still looking for more jobs as a freelance writer, but uh, as it as it stands, uh, I'm doing all right for myself. And and also with the auteur cast, I make a little bit of money doing that as well with advertisement with advertisements and whatnot yeah i mean this is i mean some people often ask me i mean it's funny you say about kind of making money through your tours cast because i sometimes i sent someone the other day about um podcasts they're like oh how much you get paid for it and i was like well you don't really and well i don't get paid anything I mean, we don't make anything of this site and it's where they see it's quite hard to explain to people sometimes i think why you kind of do these kind of passion projects other than for the fact the love of doing them and you know i know people who go spend hours every week playing golf and i try and equate it by saying well it's just the equivalent of me doing that and it's it's strange i mean but to actually be able to make money from a podcast i mean obviously i'm i'm assuming it's probably not in the millions but i mean that's kind of like the holy grail i think for a lot of people and a lot i think personally it's why a lot of people who do podcasts i mean i know there's a few in the past which i've listened to that where I know, I know the hosts got very frustrated by the fact that they don't make any money out of doing it and somehow feel that they should. And I always sort of think it's slightly the wrong attitude. If you get into doing this to, with the idea of making money, I think you're just going to end up kind of chasing your tail, really. 
Oh, totally. I mean, and let me make it clear with, with the auteur cast. It's not like uh, I, I'm the money that we make from that. I'm I'm buying like DVDs or or a new TV or or uh, or food or anything. All, all the money that we make from the auteur cast goes back into the auteur cast in, in terms of of server space, in, in bandwidth, uh, in in doing the website, uh, and and if we actually have to watch a movie that's currently out in theaters. Um, that's where the money goes to. Uh, the The freelancing writing job is is how I live day to day. And actually, I, I started doing this um, in 2009, and I did I wasn't a professional at it until like two years later in 2011. So I spent two years doing it for free, absolutely like just writing for free for any website just to get my you know my chops down, I guess. And then um, I went part time from my day job at the time in 2011 and then towards the in middle tw- uh, 2011 I became full-time doing this and it, it's it, it's hard work uh, I most people work eight-hour days I work 12-hour days maybe 13 or 14-hour days um, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is have a cup of coffee uh, brush my teeth and then hit the internet looking for things to write about and I am writing constantly all day until I go back to bed, like around um, like eleven o'clock or midnight, and then I, I do it all over again. Uh, it, it's a lot of hard work, but it's it's fun. I don't have a boss; I am my own boss, which is nice. If I want to work today, I work. If I don't, I don't have to. If uh, if I want to watch a movie, uh, I, I go and watch a movie. <laughs> it's um, it, it's a good way to uh, to uh, to live life. I think just working for yourself. And uh, you, you know, also living in New York, I, I've recently found out that a lot of women like the fact that you're, uh, if, if you're a writer, professional writer, making your ends meet as a writer in New York, I've, I've learned that women like that for some reason. So, <laughs> okay, so the, no, note, n- note to self: women like <laughs> writers. So, no, I, well, I'm currently, um, I'm, I'm now single, having been in a relationship for many, many years. Really, I know I need all the tips I can get. I don't think <laughs> women are sophisticated um, in Manchester they are in New York. That might be a massive generalisation, but I think <laughs> most women in 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 Manchester seem to think that that they just want to bag a footballer, basically, and kind of live in a massive house somewhere. So, but I will, uh, you know, I will I'll write them down. I mean, what's the kind of the film community like in New York? I mean. I, I mean, obviously, it's a massive city. It has kind of like a fine history of film. I mean, is it something which, you know, is there kind of like loads of theatres? I mean, not talking like mainstream places. There are loads of places to go that show a wide range of films, you know, kind of like, I don't know, like theatres that are kind of like, you know, quite close to you that you kind of really like? Oh, absolutely. Um, This, New York is a very big city uh, with five boroughs, like different little nooks and crannies and neighborhoods throughout this whole wonderful city that is New York. And, uh, well, there's the the Film Forum, which is uh, this independently run movie theater started in 1970, and they really showcase indie movies, mainly foreign art house films. Like whenever Janice has, um, like, a new print or something. Like I remember, um, um, what was the name of that movie? The... The Bride Wore Black, the the Francois Truffaut film, when they were um, uh, uh, cleaning that film up, restoring that film, it played at the Film Forum before it went, you know, to home distribution through the Criterion Collection or just Janus Films. Um, there's the Museum of the Moving Image, which is uh, a museum dedicated to the moving image. So there's uh, there's a lot of film history there, 
and, and TV history as well, and that's a wonderful theater. My my favorite movie theater in, in all of New York is the Walter Reed Theater, which is in uh, Lincoln Center, which has the the best movie screen, in my opinion, in New York. It, it It's one of these theaters where there's absolutely no bad seat. You could sit anywhere in this theater, and you'll have a great experience you can sit really close you can sit really far back you'll have a great experience uh it's one of the few screens in new york that's also um that's that can project 70 millimeter that can project film film it it can project digital and it's also a 3d screen so you can there's a wide array of movies that they screen there as well um there there's um all these small little independent theaters there's a spectacle theater in, in brooklyn in um williamsburg new york uh, in, in this neighborhood in Brooklyn, which is kind of really hipstery, cool, uh, trendy, and and they showed um, the Shining back uh, the backwards and forwards. Did you guys know what this uh, pro- art project is? Where they show um, the Shining pr- uh, kind of uh, projected on a screen, and they show one uh, image on top of the other, showing it forwards and then showing it backwards from the credits, uh, going backwards to the very beginning, and. The, the two images overlap to show, like, different... If, if you watch the movie uh, Room 237... Oh, yeah. um, I was yeah. just about to mention that. I've got that ready to go, and I'm yeah. slightly... Ner- I'm a little bit nervous for it. I'll explain in a minute. But, but. but there, there, there's a section in that, in that film where they talk about the, the shining backwards and forwards. Well, the, where it started was this movie theater, the small little hole-in-the-wall movie theater uh, in, in um, Brooklyn called The Spectacle, where they did that for the first time. Um so th- there's definitely a great film uh, appreciation community. There's a, uh, a lot of great museums that ha- that showcase uh, great films. There's a great film blogging community. I love all the film, well, a majority of the film bloggers that, that work here in New York, and we have a, a great community of um, film bloggers that are absolutely amazing. Um, and I guess another example of wh- how the film scene is, there's the museum... Um, there's MoMA, the, the Modern Art Museum here in New York. It's a very famous museum, and uh, they they ha- they have screenings there sometimes, like of Andy Warhol films. Of there was like this whole Dennis Hopper retrospective of showing these weird Dennis Hopper uh, short films from like the 1960s and 70s, and, and so it's like mainly art films that they show there, like experimental art, Stan Brakhage stuff like that. Um, when the last year when the raid redemption was coming out the indonesian film wonderful indonesian action film the raid hmm. redemption yeah. uh, they screened it at this really highbrow art museum and the people <laughs> who watched it absolutely oh loved it because how could you not love a movie like the raid it, it is a piece of art um it's a very violent piece of art but it's 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 a very beautiful film and something like like just that says everything about new york to me where this is a really highbrow museum that has like they have Picassos, they have um, Monets, they have like all these great pieces of art. But then they screen something like the Raid Redemption, and the people who go see it absolutely fall in love with it because it is just a, such a wonderful movie. So basically, New York sounds like everything Manchester isn't. <laughs> that's the, the sort of the upshot. I mean, no, I mean it's. It, I mean, just, I mean, going back to New York. I mean, it, it's, it's strange because. Um, uh, making like any kind of film in Britain is a real pain in the ass. And I, I made a short film last year, 
and I work for the local authority here and they were trying to charge me like something like £1,500 plus various other charges just to film on the streets and I, I was talking to a friend of the at mine the other day and he, he was making a short film and um, he, he, he turned around and he said to me he was actually going to make it in New York and I said like what, why? and he goes well you know, you know um, it's such good value for money and he rang up um, New York City I don't know the, the local authority and got through to the film department and they closed a road and gave him two police officers for $250 for the day. And oh. it just shows the complete difference in how the city obviously just embraces filmmakers, whereas in, in Manchester, it's literally... It's like something out of you know, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. It's like you have to go through to 1,500 departments where you get through to this 70-year-old man who starts quoting like <laughs> Rule, rule 14.3 of the Public Filming Act at you. And by the, by the time you're that, you're just like, you know what, sod it, I'll just do it on my own anyway. And if I get caught, I'll, um, I'll take the fine. And yeah, I, I, I've, it's, it's, I mean, I haven't been there a couple of times as well. I mean, I, I, it's, it's a great place, New York. I mean, um, it's strange because someone insulted me the other day on Facebook and called me a pinko new york lefty or something like that so it does sound like the type of place i could probably kind of find myself quite enjoying <laughs> yeah so. there's definitely the the left-leaning uh side of politics here in, in new york um yeah it's it's there's a, actually this um, marketing campaign the city of new york has called made in new york where they want people to come to new york to make movies where and like all of the movies that are made in new york have this stamp called made in new york and uh not only do these movies have this stamp of approval from New York, but they're also like really promoted um, in New York. Like uh, I'm on a subway and I see, uh, I see advertisements for this documentary called Cutie and the Boxer, which is a a really nice art um, documentary about this struggling artist uh, living in New York. And I'm this, it's a very small film um, that, um, they played at at Sundance this past year, but it's a really small film. But I'm seeing advertisements on on the subway for it, you know, and that's to me that just says something about New York, where we want um, we want the best of the best to come to this city to create whatever they want to create, to make whatever they want to make, and if you have the drive and ambition and work ethic to do it, New York will uh, reward you for that by promoting it and and making it part of the city. Um, it, it, the city is is really tough at times, um, but I, I I love it. it. I wouldn't imagine living anywhere else in the world, or at least anywhere in the United States. Uh, I've never been to uh, England, uh, but I'm sure I would love some somewhere like Manchester, <laughs> because I've just never been to England to begin with. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do. I mean, it's, it's strange actually, because. Um, yeah, a lot of tourists do come to, Man- uh, to Manchester just to see the Manchester United football ground. And I think they think that it's going to be um, this sort of like beacon on the hill and it's everywhere's going to be nice around it. And uh, I do see a lot of kind of tourists quite bemused at the end of my street when they realise that this is actually where the ground is. It's not saying I don't live in like some kind of, um, it's not the kind of like gang warfare at night or anything like that, but it's certainly not the most prettiest of places. And um, I, I, I sort of think a lot of people when they come here sort of think of of Manchester being this vast metropolis and it really kind of isn't at all. It's quite a kind of a grey uh, kind of industrial city, I suppose. And uh, I think yeah. of uh, control when I... Yeah, you get yeah. it. Uh, black and white and depressing. That's yeah. that basically. <laughs> says, that, that's basically Manchester. You know, it's uh, always it's, playing Joy Division it, all it, the time. Definitely. I mean, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it was quite funny actually because when we had the riots here a couple of years ago, 
Um, I think I, someone, someone, someone texted me and said, oh, yeah, make sure you keep your head down. And I said, it's all right. If, no one will be bothered in Manchester. They're not that political. And then literally, um, I think it was Sky News were like saying, like literally board up your house. There's a, the mob on the rampage. And uh, a friend of mine who lives in America um, j- jokingly, well, I, I don't think he was actually joking. He actually thought he saw footage of Manchester and thought it was a documentary about apartheid South Africa with like riots <laughs> and fighting going on. So, and I think if, 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 ever, if ever anything perhaps kind of sums up Manchester, that might be it. I sort of thought, good God, that is a, yeah, it's, it's not the best. It wasn't, it wasn't our finest hour, put it that way. I think it was a pretty pretty big but just quickly going back to something i didn't that that what is it room 237 the, the shining documentary or yes two? uh room 237 237 yeah um i believe you guys i mean i'm assuming really you've seen it haven't you um, oh I, i've seen it i've seen it a bunch of times yeah i actually uh, <laughs> i actually think it's a, a movie that should be taught in film 101 oh really because i i'm i've got it ready to go and what i'm fearing is I, it 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 scares me a little bit because I, I can kind of see it being this film where people go, sometimes I think it's like when you stare at clouds, sometimes you start to see shapes. And from what I've heard, the whole film seems to have that kind of ethic to it where it's oh, like... D- definitely, definitely. But it's it's a thing, well, what, what is film really about? Well, what is art really about? There's not really one clear answer. Why I think a movie like 237, uh, Room 237 should be um, shown in any film 101 class is it, it, it shows people who are learning about movies for the first time, like really learning about movies for the first time, that movies could be something more than just the story, could be something more than just what these characters are saying, that there's actual subtext in um, in all of movies, actually, not just in the art ones. Uh, I, I firmly believe in every single movie that I've seen, there's always some subtext. I mean, it might be stupid, but there's always something more than the writer, that the writers and the directors are hinting at. And, and granted, in Room 237, there are a lot of things in that movie where it, it is kind of that thing. If you're staring at an image for a long time, your eyes kind of get all or all weird and wonky, and you get you start to see things that you want to see. But hmm. that makes it more that what? Why is that less valid than something someone else sees? You know, um, and, and there are definitely things in the movie Room 237 where you think these people are absolutely crazy. That that's not there at all. But who's to say that that it isn't there? If you have if you have reason to believe that it's there, if you can, um, if you can uh, uh, put theories behind it, if you can hold it up as well as anything else, who, who's to say that that's not there? I mean, I'm sure Stanley Kubrick did not intend for that to be there, but I, I firmly believe in the death of the author. Once a movie or any piece of work uh, art is is completed, it's open to interpretation for uh, whoever wants to view it. I would agree with that, but the, the the problem I had with the film was that the makers of the film they didn't make that quite clear. I felt that they were putting words into Kubrick's mouth uh, by saying that he had these intentions and that this was a purposeful subtext. When I feel that many other things listed in the film were, uh, yeah, like you said, things that when you watch something you start to. Um, you start to pour into uh, the film your own personality and seeing things that perhaps uh, are quite as valid, but they're not necessarily the point of the filmmaker. And I feel that that distinction wasn't really clear. Yeah, I, I could I could see that, but I think first and foremost, I mean, I think the filmmaker Rodney Asher, I believe his name is. Um, I mean, he he puts he, he smartly, I, I think, puts the 
people who are have these theories front and center. I mean, we only hear mm. their disembodied voices <laughs> throughout the film. We never see them. We never see what they look like, but we just hear what their theories are. And I think um, putting that at the forefront of the movie was a good touch because I, I think if we if he would have shown what these people look like, we probably would count them out automatically instead of having this um, at least for a split second thinking they might be right. I mean, hmm. uh, when you watch the movie, you'll definitely think a lot of it is preposterous. But for a brief second, you'll think, well, maybe <laughs> it is. Maybe it is, you know. Um, that's what I, I That's what I think is, is so good about a movie like Room 237. I, 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 I love Stanley Kubrick with all my heart. He's one of my favorite directors. But I, I think every movie can be held to that kind of scrutiny that I, I, I love – um, the Shining. I think it's a great movie. We, act, we there's an episode of the Octorcast where we uh, talk about uh, and di- uh, dissect uh, that film. But I, I, I really don't hold any movie up that high where it, it doesn't. Uh, I, I, I don't project that this is a great movie. No one should ever touch it. No one should ever. Uh, this is the way the filmmaker wanted it, and there's no other interpretation for what you what other people think. I, I don't find that valid uh, at all. Like I, I feel whatever you see in the film is what is in the film, regardless of what the author's intent uh, initially was. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess when, when, when you're talking about kind of obviously, kind of you have the podcast, the old circus, but I, I, I mean, I remember when I was at university um, and we were kind of talking about Hitchcock films, um, especially, and the amount of kind of where you can lose yourself in interpretation of those films i mean it was a it was an eye-opener for i mean we actually had a a lecturer who she wrote a book um about alfred hitchcock from a feminist point of view and um it was one of the most widely kind of derided and destroyed theory film books ever written basically and everyone kind of had their guns out for it and um it, it was quite interesting kind of speaking to her in the aftermath i mean she was talking about the birds as being this kind of one great sort of rape fantasy of a film and you go back and you watch the birds and once you have that in your mind um we suddenly think well yeah there is a sort of misogyny to it definitely um is it rape i don't know but it certainly gets you thinking which i, I think is a, a good thing when you especially if you t- it depends how far down the rabbit hole of film kind of criticism and critiquing and analyzing you want to go i mean i went to go and watch elysium the other day and i, I was like well that's a, a film about universal healthcare." Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, it's Matt very Damon's, much about universal, yeah. universal healthcare. <laughs> You're getting universal healthcare, and Matt Damon is making it happen. That's what that film is about. Um, I know someone at work who went to go and watch it, and they were just like, "Yeah, it was just like basically it was just good fighting, and and anything to do with you know, the whole kind of what I would sort of say the kind of the, the wider themes of the film were completely lost on them. They just enjoyed it on the basis it had something that looked a bit like Halo." Yeah, and and who's to say that they're wrong about that? I mean, the movie, I I wasn't that big of a fan of a movie like Elysium, but who's to say that they're wrong? The movie is very entertaining. I mean, they did not read any of the the subtext. I don't know how they could not read any more of the subtext. I mean, it's right there as text, but um, (laughs) it's it's, it's definitely a very entertaining movie. And if that's all they want to get from that movie, then, then so be it. Yeah, it's. I, I, I mean, I suppose when you kind of like into criticism as well. I mean, um, is it something? I mean, do you find have you found it hard since you kind of become a full time critic to kind of find your own voice as a kind of full time you know, film blogger? Would you say you have a? Dis- would you say Rudy Obias is someone like you know like um, Armand White? I mean, you know, you can, you know, but you know, he, 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 you know, at least you can say. I mean, Armand White is he ha- he's individual, isn't he? He has something. I think he has a uniqueness to him 
by God, oh, I don't definitely. agree with almost everything that comes uh, out of his mouth. But I will readily attest, I read his blog twice oh, yeah. a week. You know, so... Uh, Armin White, um, Mr. White, he, he's, a, he's a very nice guy. I've met him quite oh, really? a few times and I've had conversations with him and I, I've watched movies with him and he's genuine. Like, I, it, people who think he's just really trolling for these opinions, he really believes this stuff and that's what makes his point of view distinct. I mean, whether you agree with it or not, uh, this is how he, he thinks and he's not really trying to be a troll. He's been doing this for like 30 years. I mean, he's professional film critic with a you know capital p uh i i i would like to think that i have my own personal voice i know there are people out there that don't like uh, my opinions or my writing um and they definitely let me know about that uh and i try my hardest not to get sucked into groupthink where a movie comes out and you're supposed to automatically like it there are definitely movies out there that i that that work for me and movies that don't um and i i what I think I bring to the table in that respect is just uh, just a, a different point of view than what most people would would feel. I mean, I think everyone's voice, everyone's opinion is valid. Uh, I'm I'm definitely a populist in that respect, like Roger Ebert. Uh, I, I like to hear what people think about movies, whether it's highbrow or lowbrow. Uh, as long as you love movies, you're definitely on the right track. Uh, I mean. Definitely, I mean, I don't. I don't expect people who love the Transformer series to also love Francois Truffaut. I love both <laughs> unapologetically. <laughs> I love Francois Truffaut, I, and I love the Transform. I love Michael Bay. We there's a whole series of the Autorecast where I defend most of the Michael Bay movies because they're just fucking amazing pieces of cinema that you've that no one can ever replicate. There's so many people who try to make a movie like Michael Bay, but there's something about his movies that 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 speak to me at least um i don't know what that says about me but i i definitely try not to um uh buy into the whole group think like i think a recent example of that is a movie like uh you're next this this horror film that this really low budget horror film that came out a couple couple of weeks ago here in the states and practically every movie critic that i all my colleagues bloggers critics they all loved it i i hated this movie i thought it was just a poorly made film despite what it was trying to get at and for me watching the movie i could not get sucked into it because it was just so poorly made like it it seemed like the filmmakers behind it only had a weekend to make a movie and this is what they turned out i mean it looked terrible it was cut together terrible there was no sense of tension and this is a horror movie uh, a horror movie with no tension or no scares I mean, what is this what what are, where are we what are we watching um a lot of people loved it i i did not and i i was not afraid to say that this is this is not a very good movie even though so many people around me are saying that this is probably one of the best horror movies of the year I mean, it's strange when you ha when I mean, I often have that where it's the kind of is it only me thing going on because the cabin in the woods, I, I literally I was like, what, what on earth are people going on about with this film? I, I could not stand it from beginning to end. And, I, and then I was sort of thinking, am I really miserable? But I mean, another example, a recent example has been Cloud Atlas, which literally I'm sort of like, folks, I think this could be it's definitely my film of the year so far. Um, it, it's an absolute masterpiece, and I, I gave it to my uh, 
ex-girlfriend and when she came back to me I, she said you wasted seven and a half years of my life you've just wasted another three and I'm looking at her what a terrible person for saying that <laughs> and I looked at her and I went well that's that, this is clearly why you're now my ex-girlfriend if you cannot see the genius of that film you know but it, it, it's it's interesting what happens I mean like True Romance is another film I absolutely despise and by god I've copped shit for that in the past for kind of um uh, so and I yeah I think I if I had the kind of a, a bit of time to kind of go into it I could legitimately say why that is but like you say it's just opinion and you know, yeah I mean, like a, a lot of people love the Usual Suspects they think that's one of the best movies of the nineties I think it's a terrible movie I think it's probably one of the worst movies of the nineties. Uh, there's uh, I can't remember what episode of the Autorcast where I go on this amazing rant about why The Usual Suspects is one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> um, and I, I think Brian Singer's an all right filmmaker, somewhat mediocre. I, I think people hold him up a lot higher than you know his output actually suggests. But I think The Usual Suspects is terrible. Like, there, and I've seen it a number of times too. This is not a, a situation where I've just seen it once and I just didn't. It didn't resonate with me. I, I throughout the course of my life, I think I've seen it maybe four or five times, and I've, it, it's it's just never stuck to me that I don't understand why people like this movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, well, Brian Singer. I've always been. I I think he's a very very lucky person, Brian Singer, um, in terms of um, kind of where he's got in his career. Uh, I yeah I it's a strange one with him because I, I hate to use the words Brett Ratner but sometimes I sort of think he is kind of in that kind of um, bracket of filmmakers but I mean I guess kind of just asking me really, in general what what are your favorite films uh, overall oh uh, well my favorite uh, my favorite movie of all time my number one favorite movie of all time is um, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia uh, I, I think that is. Um, I, I, I can say that I don't think it's his best film, like from right now as we're recording this episode in 2013. I've seen all of his movies, and I think something like There Will Be Blood or The Master is far more ambitious, but there's just something about Magnolia that always just sticks with me. Um, just because at the level, the love, like that movie and um, Moulin Rouge, which came out a couple uh, years later, um, the Baz Luhrmann musical, the mo- both movies start off at 10 okay at level 10 (laughs) and they never let go of you for like two and a half hours three hours so for two and a half hours for or three hours depending on the movie both filmmakers paul thomas anderson and baz lerman just create this this climax like most movies the climax is probably just like the last scene or the last couple scenes of of uh, of the film everything's building towards towards it in magnolia and and moulin rouge they start off with a climax and they don't let you go for the whole movie and they the, the whole momentum of the film is um just taken from that the, the early stages of the moment and it never lets you down throughout and i think that's quite an undertaking to have um, to create a movie with that kind of tone, with that kind of like manic behavior, but still can keep it going throughout the whole movie. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I went back to Manglodia, um not so long ago, and I was I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Again, I think it really does stay up. I, I mean, I, I, sort of, I watched it in conjunction with American Beauty, which I don't think now quite holds up um, mm. as well as I thought it used to. But Magnolia was kind of of that same period. It, uh, you know, not late nineties or whatever, and I went back and I thought, God, this film really is quite something. Um, and it, like Cloud Atlas, I think it it um, it it warrants a second viewing, 
and kind of like pick through it and kind of digest it a little bit more. But saying that, I know I know someone else who despises Magnolia with quite an <laughs> well, uh, extreme and, passion. And, and interestingly enough, like when I first saw Magnolia, I absolutely hated it. I thought it was a terrible movie. I thought it was pretentious. I thought it was bloated. I thought it was overlong. Um, and Ma- why Magnolia is my number one movie? Because it keeps reminding me that maybe... I should give a movie a second chance because the, the second time I watched Magnolia a year later, I was completely floored by it. I, I, I don't understand where my, where my headspace was when I first watched it, where I think it was, where I thought it was a terrible film. One year later, I watched the movie and I fell in love with it as if I'm watching it for the first time. Uh, Magnolia taught me the value of giving a movie a second chance. I always give movies a second chance like, the usual suspects why i've watched it a number of times um maybe this time around i'll like it 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 hasn't happened yet but i'll let you know if it does i doubt it ever will but (laughs) magnolia the the second time i watched it i i fell in love with it It, like this movie taught me that this the movie's uh it it felt this movie was a a lot smarter than i was and it was only now that I caught up with it. And I remember the summer where I, I watched it for the second time and fell in love with it. I watched it practically every day that summer, like paying attention to it, having it on in the background as I'm, as I'm working or writing or something. But it was just always on, and I would always find these little bits and pieces to, to love about it. And my friends at the time, um, every time I would talk to them, I would always talk about Magnolia. Like, I found this in Magnolia. I found that in Magnolia. What does this mean? What does that mean? Uh, And for that summer, it was nothing but Magnolia. And uh, we we did a series on Paul Thomas Anderson um, about a year ago, a a year ago now when The Master came out, and we talked about Magnolia. And I, in preparation for the episode, re-watching Magnolia, uh, yeah, it's it's still a great movie. It's the movie... It's the type of movie that I watch at least once a year just to reaffirm, like, this is my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, I mean, just just for anyone as well, um, he's uh, listening, and that's uh, the auteurs cast. Um, it's episode 134, as I understand. I've got it on my iTunes now, so um, definitely go back. And just what, what, did he, what did you two make of The Master as well? Because I've seen it twice now, and I am yet to really get into this film or like it at all. And I really thought it... I, I really, really thought it was going to be my kind of film of the year last year and it completely fell flat with me in many respects and I'm yeah it's a strange one um I I, I think we're a little I I, I like the movie quite a bit uh, I, I think West was a little mixed on on the master from if memory serves me I, I think the master is a great film I, I think this was one of my top five movies of, of 2012 last year uh, I, I've seen the movie uh, a, a number of times when it was in theaters, just so I can watch the watch it in the seventy millimeter print, because you know uh, once it was going to be in uh, on home video, when will you get another chance to watch uh, the the master in its uh, glorious seventy millimeter print? Um, and uh, yeah, it was my number three of twenty twelve, and I, I think that uh, it's it's a, it's a strange movie where. We have these two characters in the the Philip Seymour Hoffman character and the Joaquin Phoenix character, where you don't really know which side these people are coming from. One moment, uh, you, you think you figure it out, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, but then the next scene he'll 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 trick you or, or surprise you. And the same thing with uh, the Joaquin Phoenix character, and the whole film just kind of plays with that, like 
that notion where you think you, you know what this film is about, but then Paul Thomas Anderson will, will, will show you this, and maybe you'll have to reevaluate it again. And he's doing that throughout the whole course of the film, where unlike There Will Be Blood, where you kind of have a clear-cut um, a clear-cut vision of what the the Daniel Plainview character, the Daniel Day-Lewis character was and how he was from scene to scene. You, you don't quite get that with The Master. And I think that there's something very interesting in that where it is a completely different film from There Will Be Blood, where There Will Be Blood was kind of like, this is this is text, this is what uh, this movie's going to be about and just enjoy the ride. Uh, and with The Master, it's a little bit more ambiguous, I think. Even down to the last scene of the film, like, what was this movie about? Like, was this a dream sequence? Was this not a dream sequence? Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's always playing with your expectations in that way. Uh, unlike There Will Be Blood, where he uh, he matches your expectations and he just keeps giving you that same thing again and again. Not to say that There Will Be Blood's a bad movie. It's, I think There Will Be Blood is a better movie than The Master, but The Master... He's playing with that. He's playing with the audience and, and film a little bit more. I watched it um, two days ago, I think, for the first time. And um, I felt that it uh, was an incredible film in terms of just how it keeps the tension, as you were talking about, Rudy. Just the, it keeps you on your toes the entire film and you never, you never quite know what to make of it. And... That is something that he does uh, incredibly well, Mr. Anderson. And I feel that both There Will Be Blood and The Master has a certain um, it has a certain distance to its characters, uh, as opposed to something like Magnolia, which I feel is much more emotional film. But in The Master, there's this unclear feeling about it where you're you're never quite sure what to make of it and you're never quite sure where it's going and yet when you get to the end it sort of feels like a complete film it feels like this is where it's supposed to end up we're supposed to follow this journey that these two characters are on and when they leave each other that's the end of the movie and sort of like the discordant music that Johnny Greenwood composes for the film it's this kind of off-key film that is actually it's quite perfectly off-key if you catch my drift yeah whereas there will be blood is a little bit more precise I feel like it's definitely more distinct like you watch the movie and you'll know if you like it or hate it as as soon as you're watching it as it unfolds you, you like as each scene unfolds you just think I like this movie even more I like this movie even more I like this movie even more or just conversely as each scene unfolds I don't like this movie I don't like this movie I don't like this movie the the masters is definitely a little bit different where as each scene unfolds you like I like this I really like this I don't know if I like this I think this is terrible <laughs> I like this I like this and I think that there's something to that where the 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 inconsistencies in the tone of the film just completely mirrors the inconsistencies uh with the the two uh, characters, uh, the mm. the um, the Joaquin Phoenix and the Philip Seymour Hoffman characters, where the I, I don't think that that's a mistake, you know, um, that that that's something at least Paul Thomas Anderson is at least playing around with, uh, mm. and yeah, it's 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 such a it's such a great movie. I mean, even on an entertainment level, you know, you can watch the movie and just be uh, inspired by the amazing visuals or even on that kind of like hoity-toity pretentious level that I'm just spewing right now. 
No, I, well, I mean, to be honest, even you saying that has made me sort of think perhaps my sort of uh, initial kind of visceral sort of I don't like this film kind of reaction to it. I, I, you know, might need kind of reevaluation. I mean, actually one of the biggest issues, I'm glad you mentioned it, you know, Kimmy, I, I, find, I think the Johnny Greenwood music and that really grates me. Um, mm. On its own, the soundtrack is just tr- trying to do anything. Yeah, you know, I, I often, when I'm working, I have kind of music in the background. When you've when you got that on, you're like, God, turn it off. You know, it's like kids screaming or something like that just in their head just does it just completely kind of uh, winds me up but i guess i mean kind of talking about film is a, 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 a kind of a decent segue to get into house because um I, I think it's a film which i think it's fair to say um we were talking about it kind of before we started recording that um uh, it kind of certainly I, I, I'm, I'm not sure i loved it from the off i've kind of watched it a few times now and i've kind of try to kind of get my head around it and um i guess i mean i mean rudy you, you know this was a film obviously you picked well, well why did you kind of go with house when you decided to uh kind of come <laughs> on the show uh, well house house is uh is definitely one of those movies where you don't know how you feel about it as it unfolds i i the first time i saw this movie i just thought what is this batshit crazy type of movie and but the more that i watch it the more that i introduce it to people um the more i i like it in preparation for this episode recently watching this movie i i'm, I'm watching like man there's like so many things that i i've been missing uh as i as i watched it before where that i'm picking up now this is actually one of my favorite movies of all time it's in my top 10 movies um that just speak to me uh there's something about House where in each scene, even within the same scene, it just drastically goes from tone to tone to comedy to tragedy to to horror to to, uh, to to just craziness to something small to something subtle. But then you know, there's rats and uh, mice all over your body for some reason. <laughs> it, it, it's a it's a crazy crazy movie, and the the filmmaker. Uh, Obayashi, he he's always pl- uh, playing around with your expectations. He's always uh, he ki- kind of pulling one over on you as, as the movie unfolds. The f- opening scene of the film is, is kind of like this um, this this woman wearing this traditional Japanese wedding dress and all these beakers and 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 smoke, and you think to yourself, "Oh, this is going to be uh, a kind of a scary." horror movie like the the title would suggest but then no she's not she's just some schoolgirl in a chemistry class and her best friend's taking pictures of her <laughs> and you auto- automatically like he, he's playing around with what you think this movie is going to be and then that's just the first scene of the movie um he, he he does it so well where he um not just in the the film's uh uh, writing or what the story is, the quote-unquote story, but just also in, in filmmaking. Like, every uh, special effects, every camera trick is in this movie. Like, every everything they teach you in film school is in this movie of, like, how, how to uh, spin around a camera, how to overexpose a film, how, uh, how to use chroma key, how, how to use this kind of special effect, how to use jump cuts, how to use wipes. All, all of it is right here in this movie. The, <laughs> and, and even on that visual level, um, the filmmaker uh, creates this great world and is not around to play around with it either with the characters or, or with the camera. And there's just something always just exciting about this this movie that I, I don't feel any other movie can match, just kind of how manic it is. Yeah, I guess it's a good... I mean, a good time anyway to kind of talk a little bit about the story of 
of it because really we have a young girl by the name of Gorgeous, and we'll get more to the names later, who basically um, is planning to go away on holiday with her father, who then gets kind of introduced to her father's um, new fiance, and she kind of goes, not so much a jealous rage, but um, obviously she's not overly thrilled with it. And her and six of her friends go and stay with Gorgeous's aunt, and it's, I mean, that is really. I suppose a very kind of vague kind of description of him because to give anything more to kind of talk about it even more I think you might kind of well give away spoilers if there is some but essentially it becomes this kind of crazy almost kind of Scooby-Doo adventure of a house oh, totally. that, that kind of seemingly wants to eat these kids um, but at the same time whilst all this kind of mental crazy shit's going on um, they don't just leave that's sort of the kind of, they sort of decide to against I don't know what, why on earth it's I say but it it's a film which I mean obviously when um, Joachim said this is when you went to pick I mean I, I've, I've bought the film twice on Master Cinema and on the Criterion Collection um, I've never got around to watching it uh, it was one of those kind of when I was going through my I must have spine numbers phase and just buying anything that had a spine number on it and I was kind of gobsmacked really with House because on the one hand I have never seen anything like this and as we were sort of saying before you go to cinema sometimes and within 10 minutes like Man of Steel I was just like I've seen this film before I've seen it when it was Superman 1 and 2 I saw it when it was The Avengers and every other superhero film ever made and then it was just this torturous two hours for the rest of it and I just thought God you know come on let's just try and do something different and and House is the complete polar opposite of that I honestly had no idea what was coming next. And for that reason alone, I did really, really enjoy House. But having gone back to it, I found that I I do have frustrations with the film in that it it never really seems to kind of settle down to a point where I can kind of take anything more meaningful out of it other than the fact that I'm watching this crazy kind of film. And what I tend to find is that in both times times I've watched it, I've, I've kind of drifted off and kind of started checking my phone or you know just wondering should I get another beer in or just and that's that's probably not the best sign that this film is something you know that I'm I'm enjoying that much but I mean you're a Kim and you've been a little bit more kind of forthright really basically with your opinions of film having watched it now I've seen it now I think four times and the first time I saw it um I think the best way to describe it is just what the fuck was this film? <laughs> I had no idea what to make of it, and I felt like it was something I I knew I had to see it uh, several more times before I could uh, form an opinion on it because um, I just it was such an like left field film that you can you have never seen anything like this, and you will probably never see anything like this, and. The second time I saw it, I saw it with a mate, and I actually really liked it then. I think that was mainly because we'd been drinking and it was late. <laughs> yeah, that helps. And yeah, uh, I found out that beer actually didn't help me the third time around when I watched it alone again, and I went back to not really liking it. So I feel that this film is like a, it's like a party film that you can. If you can laugh together, if you have, if I have someone that can like pull me up and enjoy it, um, I can like be pulled up to their level of enjoyment. But when I'm watching it alone, I'm, I'm just too dour to like a film like this. The campiness of it, 
the like the playfulness of it it's i like it to a certain extent but when everything is turned to like 11 it gets it's just too much for me to enjoy it's too whimsical it's too <laughs> fantastical everything is just too much for me and it's it's uh, kind of interesting because the same reasons why you mentioned Rudy liking this film those are pretty much the same reasons I don't like the film I just feel that he goes too far and it's just too incredible and it's just no restraint at all and he just throws everything at it and it becomes sort of a mess for me yeah but the way I, I think of it is the, he, start, he starts out the film by throwing everything against the wall and I, I think just creating that from beginning to end, uh, that sense of anything can happen, like visually, story-wise, and then it does become somewhat of a conventional horror, haunted house horror film where the girls get picked off one by one. Hmm. Um, but then, but just starting out that way and creating this sense of just manicness where it, this is like one part of horror film, one part of comedy, one part coming of age, one part musical. You know, there's definitely a musical-esque sequence in this with uh, the shoemaker and his daughter bobbing their head to this, you know, this music. Yeah. You know, are they listening? Are we listening to the music as a member of the audience or is this music <laughs> actually there in part of the movie? Who knows? Um, starting off the movie in that way and then playing with um, the, the genre tropes with uh, Mr. Togo as, as this this guy who's supposed to be something of their hero. One of the girls' fantasies sees him as the hero, and he's anything but the hero. When he comes to save the day, he gets turned into bananas pretty quickly. He turns in quite literally turns into a, a stack of bananas. <laughs> um, th- all of that stuff in the movie is is what I, I absolutely love about it. Is that it, it's unlike anything you've ever seen before, and it's unlike anything you'll ever see afterwards. But I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's a bad movie in that sense. You look at a movie like Troll 2, you know. Uh, have you guys seen that movie Troll 2 or The Room? No, I have not. Um, but I've, not you, seen, uh, I've not seen Troll 1 yet. <laughs> well, <laughs> skip <laughs> Troll 1, just go to Troll 2. You don't really need to know much. But these types of movies, like The Room, have you guys seen The Room or anything like that? The... I've stayed away from it. The reason why I've said because someone was telling me they went to a screen and started throwing spoons at the screen. Oh, yeah. T- oh, yeah. <laughs> I was, you, I was just, you, just like, what? You, you have to bring you have to bring plastic cutlery to 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 watch the room. The room is a terrible movie, but it, it, it's movies like the room, Troll Two, uh, Sharknado. Uh, m- m- more recently, here in the states, at least, the phenomenon that is Sharknado, uh, Birdemic. These types of movies that are just terrible, just terrible schlockiness. And you watch it and think, oh, this is going to be a terrible movie. I'm going to make fun of it, and I'm going to have a good time, and rightfully so. And you do, and you have a good time. But these movies are generally bad movies. They're, like, poorly written, poorly put together, poorly acted, um, poorly cut together, and just bad movies. No way around it. The only good thing you'll like about it is that you're making fun of it. You get a movie like House, where you think it's going to be a movie where you're just going to make fun of it. Well, actually, you don't know what kind of movie it is, but... Some people would think it'd probably fall in that wheelhouse where I'm liking this movie because it's so bad. But you look at the film, it's not poorly written. It's not poorly, they're non-actors in it, but it's not poorly acted. Uh, it's not poorly cut together. It's, it's, it's not poorly made. That's the thing that I like about this movie. I think that this movie is well-crafted in all of its manicness. Every decision that the, um, the filmmaker made, the 
you can see it in the movie. I don't think anything in this movie was a mistake. Like when he wants uh, this piano to eat this girl and have sex with this girl, he intends that to happen. Um, and even good movies, even great movies. Like I just recently watched Forrest Gump, and I, I like Forrest Gump quite a bit. But you know, there's really not much there. You know, it's a pretty conventional movie. You watch it, and it's very uplifting, and you'll kind of forget about it. There's nothing really extraordinary with the filmmaking. You watch a movie like House, and every decision that Obayashi makes in this movie is intentional. Uh, even even down to like one of my favorite sequences in it in the movie when we finally get introduced to all the girls very early on, and they're in their school uniforms and they're sitting at the fountain and they're just having this conversation with, with each other. And the ca- first, when we get the introduction, the camera just pans across this, this row of girls sitting at this fountain and we get introduced to them in that way. And then they're having a conversation and the, 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 the camera um, wipes from, from girl to girl. And they're only sitting like, you know, five feet like two feet away from each other but the way that it's cut it seems like they're very far away from each other um there's something exciting about that the transition from from one conversation to the next to the next to the next and then at the end of that whole thing it's you see all all the girls uh in in a row again and you realize that they're not far away from each other they're really close to each other but why did he make that decision to to um to cut that way. Why, why did he want to use this right now when he could have just easily done it conventionally? Uh, he, he's piquing your interest in that way. The, 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 the director, he comes from commercial, the commercial Japanese uh, making commercials in Japan. And this movie has that kind of sense where it has this, the same attention span of, of a child, the same attention span of you're watching a commercial. And I don't know, there's something exciting about that. He holds that for 90 minutes you know, he holds that manicness, that 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 curiosity for a solid ninety minutes, and I guarantee the fir- at least the first time you watch this movie, you're going to be engaged with it at least on that level, and there's just something exciting about that. I mean, I mean, I can echo what you're saying, really. I mean, I, I actually, directorially at least, I think yeah, it's a brilliant film to watch. I mean, the actual level of technical expertise is incredible i think a lot of the time i mean there's a bit i mean about 20 minutes through the film um i think the girls are going across this bridge and it's suddenly kind of we get reintroduced themselves with captions on the screen saying this is um kung fu this is yeah blah de, blah and, and you're sort of thinking well i think i was watching i thought i've not seen anyone do it. 20 minutes through the film suddenly decides to suddenly kind of like just to kind of reiterate who these characters are and there's other things as well like i mean there's a scene where the girls bend down i think to pick something up and it shows it like the girl bending down three times doing it mm. and you, you sort of watch it and, and for me I, this is where i, I think perhaps my enjoyment for most most of what, what i do enjoy about kind of house is the fact that you're kind of watching this and it papers over the fact that i'm not really that bothered by what happens to these girls the kind of the story overall I, I, that aspect of me kind of felt pretty much flat to be brutally honest with you I didn't I, I, I thought going into this I was going to be watching a horror film um, and I was actually quite looking forward to it I, 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 was, I was waiting to be scared and then I was like oh, oh shit this isn't a horror film at all when that music comes on and <laughs> I, I've got to be honest, I mean that music is 
like it's worse than the Greenwood. Yeah, I, I almost started oh. confessing to crimes I'd done in my youth. <laughs> I, I love that music. I love that music so much. Every time they they play it so much in this movie, but every time they do, my a smile comes on. Like just you'll see this smile creep across my face, and then whenever they play that music, you know something terrible is going to happen because <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it's just kind of joyous music. But every time they play it. Like at least towards the last half of the film, something bizarre or crazy comes happens when the cat is going on the piano. Yeah, and then one of the girls get picked gets picked off uh, when they pl- start playing that music. Yeah, uh, um, yeah, but I mean, it's it it, 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 it was constantly it kind of constantly holds my attention. But I'm just so not kind of going down with the film. I, I don't sort of just sit there thinking to myself, right? I want to be scared. I I, I don't find it funny. What what am I getting out of it other than the fact that I'm kind of enjoying the kind of the technical aspects of it and going back to it the second time um it, it, i mean an hour and 26 minutes i was sort of thinking, along with that music as well i was kind of like oh dear this is beginning to really kind of drag now and it, it's it, it raises to me quite an interesting question because i mean obviously I've, I've talked about the fact that i enjoy the kind of technical aspects of it but i mean people say it's a cult film and it's kind of this i've i've, I've heard people or certainly read articles about people who kind of hold it up as this masterpiece and i i think it kind of it's worth kind of talking about kind of on debating a little bit is you know is this actually a good film really or is it or you know is is it is it fairly painful i don't know i honestly i i I can't get my head around it i mean yeah you know obviously it kind of does all these things but does that really mean anything i don't know you know it's, it's sort of it's a strange one it's a very odd film um, I think in that respect, I just don't know quite what to make of it. Well, I mean, it's if you remember early on in our conversation, I said that every movie, and I, I firmly believe this, that every movie has subtext, that every movie is not really what it's about. Um, whether that be very simple or stupid, I think that every movie does have a little bit of subtext. It's not going to blow you away. Like, the subtext in Transformers Dark of the Moon is not, uh, <laughs> you know, as as uh, heavy or weighty as the subtext in something like, uh, you know, Shortcuts or something. Transformers Robert, 2. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I, I will have a very deep conversation about the, the subtext of... Uh, of Dark of the Moon with you about commercialism, <laughs> how how Michael Bay has given uh, gives us uh, branding and commercialism and puts that into our like at least American history with the moon landing. Uh, I mean, people land on the moon, right? That's a big moment for American history and the world history. But how does what does Michael Bay do with that? He gives us this toy, this 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 transformer this hasbro product and incorporates that along with actual history i think there's something to be said about that but what i think house is getting at and this really didn't strike me until um somewhat fairly recently when i watched this movie and where it is kind of like this conventional horror movie where um you know girls go into a haunted house and then they get picked off one by one and uh, you watch haunted house movies like that. There's nothing really interesting, and they really don't say as much. Where I think House uh, at least plays around with the notions of that trope, where you think about these girls, you think about this house, and you think about who who lives in this house, the, the aunt. And w- the most we know about any of these characters is um, Gorgeous's aunt, um, that she had this great love when she was younger. World War Two happened, and her 
her um her 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 the greatest lover of her life was enlisted into the army he dies uh tragically in in this bomber uh fight and he's he's dead and she never meets anyone else she's uh she's just gonna be the spinster for the rest of her life she's very lonely and they keep emphasizing this throughout the movie how lonely she is there's definitely a point in the movie where i uh watching the film where I think that this house kind of become this woman becomes this house, this house kind of gets her attributes. And then if you think about the characters, the, the girls in this movie, they don't go by typical names. They go by prof, melody, Kung Fu, max, sweet and gorgeous and fantasy. And I, I think about this as uh, kind of the, the, the subliminal workings of this, this woman where uh, we have attributes of people's personality, like, Prof is obviously the part, obviously, that sounds so pretentious, but Prof is the part of her that's intelligent. Melody is the part of her that's somewhat creative. Fantasy is also a part of her that's creative, that comes out with these great imagination. Um, and, and Gorgeous is her beauty, and, and so on and so forth. And how the house is kind of rejecting these attributes of, of her that get introduced into the film, that the house just wants her to be lonely, uh, that's something that I keep seeing when I watch this movie again and again, and especially that the symbol of, of this movie is a cat. Like, the, what is the symbol of, you think of a spinster living alone? Well, you think about, she's a cat woman, you know? She has all these cats around her, and um, maybe I'm reading too much into the movie. Uh, maybe I'm doing my own version of Room 237. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, I think that's valid when you when you look about, when you think about uh the movie like house in that respect yeah uh, well yeah definitely i mean it's all it's 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 it, 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 i i i completely see what you're saying but what i kind of think is to kind of i don't like to necessarily pigeonhole films as being one thing or other you know is this a horror film is it a thriller or something like that but i'm sort of watching this film thinking okay um as a horror film does this film work to me no you know, as a kind of comedy, does it work? No. Um, as a kind of a satire, I can see the kind of fact that it's... It does seem to be kind of mocking, I think, certain kind of... Especially sort of like kind of American kind of soap operas and things like that. I think it seems to be kind of quite you know, melodramatic. And kind oh, yeah, of definitely. Taking, <laughs> I mean, it, it really... I mean, kind of like... And commercialism as well. I mean, there's sort of several... I mean, there's a scene where um, I think the first time the um, head comes out, the well one bites the girl on the arse. Um, completely randomly, she kind of like turns towards the camera and it kind of frames her in like those kind of like, you know, women's hair product adverts when they walk out the salon and they look like they've just kind of had a massive line of coke with a huge smile on their face. <laughs> kind of does that that kind of look, and you're sort of thinking, what, what the hell was that? But again, that's that's part of my kind of issue with the film is that I just don't know what to feel when I'm seeing it. I don't know, you know, emotional wise. I can't get invested in it. I can't. I, 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 it's almost like I can't settle into it or or see what it is. And you know, obviously, it's like an onion, isn't it? You kind of peel back the layers, and you know, things will be there eventually. But for the most part. Um, yeah, I, I was just kind of thinking to myself, well, yeah, what, 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 what are we doing here? You know, what, where are we going? I mean, you know, I mean, what, what she, you know, going to, I mean, is there anything about it you do kind of enjoy? I do enjoy, uh, like you, the technical aspects of it, where you can sort of, I mean, the film is very well made. You can watch the backgrounds and they're quite beautifully made, even though they have this kind of unnatural painterly style but you can see that it 
it is something to behold. But when I'm not invested in the characters, I'm not invested in the story, it's like this. I feel like it's something of an intentionally bad movie. It it wants to... I mean, he, he does throw these things at us because... He, he it isn't like a, a badly made movie. I feel like this is these are the kinds of effects that he wants it to be, and uh, quite intentionally so. And I just feel that this sort of this sort of comedy and satire it's it's very subjective, and it's it's kind of hard for me to go uh, to to uh, say my opinion without more than just saying no it doesn't work for me or yes it works for me because it's such a subjective thing and yeah um it's difficult to find like words to describe why you don't why you don't why you aren't grabbed by a movie when it's kind of just laying there it's, yeah, well, well, this 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 movie is definitely the perfect example of how movies are completely subjective because mm. i mean i, I this the way people usually feel about this movie is however I feel on this day. You know, I feel like I'm going to like this movie. I feel like I'm not going to like it on this day. And however you feel about yourself or how your day is going is generally how you're going to project uh, how you feel about this movie. Um, like like you said, like if you're with a group of people, you, you'll you'll like the movie. If you're by yourself, you probably won't. Um, I, I think that's the one thing that. And you think about just movies today, there's always just a general consensus of, like, this is a great movie and this is not a great movie. And there's always, like, a clear-cut division of, like, you know, more people like it or more people hate it. And this one is kind of, like, equally matched. You know, I can definitely see why people don't like this movie at all, and I can totally see why people just fall in love with it. Um, and again, it just goes to the excitement of, of the, the film itself. I mean, there's nothing clear cut or or distinct about the uh, about this well there's definitely things that are distinct about this movie but there's nothing clear cut about it but that also goes along with the people people's opinions about the movie that there's nothing clear cut about it i think it really bucks the trend of jap of what i thought about japanese film i mean i i grew up on kind of like you know, my my opinion of japanese cinema and my kind of perception of it was um, you know, kind of like Kurosawa and, and and people like that, and this felt more kind of like you know T- Takeshi Miike film or something like that. That kind of you know South Korean hmm. type of craziness. It didn't it didn't feel so much like a typical Japanese film. And I mean, I, I think it might be slightly worth just kind of backtracking a bit and talking about the kind of the the genesis of this film because it's actually quite interesting. And I think kind of really kind of infuses kind of what we're talking about because originally House was meant to kind of be really a kind of a japanese version of jaws yeah that was the, the original plan you know of they'd, they'd kind of send jaws and were like right you know let's try and do something similar um for japanese audiences and um you know i'll be actually kind of like when he was kind of planning it out went to his 10 year old daughter who i think she's actually the girl who's nodding isn't she to the music as i understand yeah she's uh, the the little girl yeah. along with the shoemaker yeah and, and he, he turned to her and said like you know what scares you and she was like, um, oh, I don't know, a futon attacking me or, you know, looking in the mirror and telling my reflection. And that, that, is, it's like, that is the type of stuff that kids come up with. You know, I mean, what, what kind of scares me is the tax man. You know, so, so you're, you're not sort of, at, you know, my um, carpet suddenly reaching up and, you know, trying to kill me. You know? and, and, and how on earth the film kind of, you know, evolution wise went from kind of men, 
pretending to be something like Jaws to this. Uh, I think it's kind of incredible, really. I mean, I, I think it's it, it it's interesting that someone who's kind of given that brief ends up here. Uh, he's you. As I'm watching it, I'm sort of thinking, you know, when when I, I suppose Toho, the, the studio behind it, must watch it. They weren't very impressed at all, as I understand, with kind mm. of what they're. And you can sort of see why, in a way. But the, the the kind of interesting fact was, it was a film that was very much made for Japanese teenagers, and it was you know how many you know we have like Twilight now that kind of fulfil that kind of quota for kind of teenage fan films. Uh, and this, I, I'm sort of thinking, what, what, what on earth was going on with Japanese teenagers at the time that this was the kind of thing that they thought they would want to see? And obviously, they, obviously they did because it was a, it was, you know, it was massively popular. Well, the, the thing is with, um, and I find it interesting with this film that this is also uh, Obayashi's first film. I haven't seen any of his other films, but I'll just put that into context there. And from what I understand about this movie, like. The directors at Toho did not want, no one wanted to make this movie. No one mm. wanted to direct it. Not a single one of their working directors wanted to touch this movie. Uh, and Obayashi, he wanted to tackle this movie. He saw something interesting in it. And also coming from that commercial, um, that TV commercial uh, background, you, you can see how he infused his personality or at least his background into the film. What I find interesting about this is he still has that love of what you would think of as uh, Japanese cinema. I mean, there are those sort of homages to Ozu with those flashback scenes, uh, those pre-war World War II flashback scenes that kind of, you know, feel like early uh, Ozu films in that respect. I mean, albeit that the camera is moving, but at least, you know, I, I guess on a surface level, they feel somewhat like Ozu. Um, I, I think why this movie resonates with teenagers or at least with uh, young people because it has that manic personality to it that it the attention span is definitely you know there is no attention span it just keeps jumping from one to the other to the other to the other and i can there's definitely something appealing uh, about that with, with teenagers um or you know at least <laughs> i mean i find something appealing with that that uh, while this movie is manic uh, and has that kind of frenetic energy to it. At least for me, I, I'm never, definitely never bored while watching it. But I'm always engaged. I'm always, I want to see what's happening next. I, I want to know what's going to happen next. I want to know when uh, Kung Fu wants to solve a problem by kicking its ass. You know, <laughs> I want to see that next scene. Um, and I, I think a lot of the success from this movie comes with the girls. You know, you you have these these seven you know, very, very attractive women in this movie that have different personalities that are just, you know, somewhat provocatively and very colorfully. And they, they make the movie for me. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to, for anyone to watch this movie for the first time and not fall in love with Kung Fu. I think Kung Fu is, uh, definitely the first one you gravitate to. I mean, I, I love fantasy. Fantasy is one of my favorites, but there's just something about Kung Fu. There's just something about this, this girl who solves all of her problems with Kung Fu that you just kind of have to gravitate to. I mean, I love her introduction to this. Uh, again, when we're being introduced to all of these girls at, uh, outside of the school, uh, the camera is just dollying through these, uh, the, these girls, and they're having a conversation. This one girl, Kung Fu, she gets up. She 
you know, knocks a ball out of the way that's about to hit her friends. And then I believe it's, uh, I believe it's sweet that says Kung Fu, you're so cool. You know I mean? <laughs> that's, that's how we're introduced to this character is by someone saying Kung Fu, you're so cool. You can't help but not fall in love with her. I do love the musical, uh, the little music <laughs> kind of riff that she gets every time she does do something. Yeah. Like Just that. That, that did amuse me. It's, that's kind of, yeah, it's crazy little kind of, uh, I'm not sure if it's a guitar solo or something like that. But, uh, but uh, then yeah, you rewatch the movie and, and the, you know, Kung Fu, the actress who plays her, or the non-actress that plays her, she doesn't have a karate background. She doesn't know martial arts she's just kicking and punching like anyone else but the way it's cut the way that's put together you're fooled you, you think that she is she can take on bruce lee you know uh just by the way that uh obayashi is is um you know sending her uh, you know showing her on the screen by his his uh use of cinema with these cuts and transitions it's it's fantastic just to backtrack a little, we were talking about the historical context of it, and I think that Obayashi he was uh, he was he wrote the script for this, and then it just lay there for a year, and then since no one else wanted to direct it, he was given the opportunity, and you can definitely see that his experience as a commercial filmmaker, as a experimental filmmaker in his commercials, that definitely shines through, and just the. He was given like free reign for from the Toho studio because the domestic market, um, it the revenue of cinema was just in serious decline, and people were went gravitating towards the Ozu films and these sort of classical cinema. And he was allowed to break all these cinematic conventions that have stayed with the Toho studio system for so long and I think that was something that appealed to the younger audiences that there was someone who was so almost irreverent to the style of Ozu he's, he's sort of mocking Ozu and in the opening scene where he's and even in the scene where we see the um the auntie uh, in her like um background history it's sort of this um it's poorly made Ozu version of a um, of a of someone looking back at their past. And you can just, I think that this irreverent style was something that appealed to the uh, to the younger audience as well as uh, seven girls getting naked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, give me this over Ozu any day. I'm, I'm still yet to love Ozu. And, oh, uh, come on, Ozu is is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> we had Dave Blakesley on to talk about um, Ozu, and uh, yeah, it was um, it was strange because. I, I, yeah, I really did enjoy the film, but um, I'm yet to kind of really tune into those. I, I, I feel he's a director of it like Tarkovsky. I will get there in the end. It's just well, that I, I'm, I'm sort of I'm still waiting for that kind of journey to. Uh, so kind of I think the comforting thing about Ozu, at least for me, is that all, all of his films are pretty much about the same thing. But hmm. at the same, so there's always, and again, we talked about James Bond earlier. So there's that sense of familiar you know, familiarity familiarity uh, while watching his movies but again it's that subtext it's the way he shoots things it's the way that the characters uh, interact with each other it's the way that the characters are almost looking at the the audience as they're addressing each other i love the way that ozu cuts conversations together um the the you know the the subject the actor is you know dead center and it's almost looking like the eyeline of uh of looking at the other actor off off screen is kind of almost the same eye line of looking at the audience. So it always feels like he's these movies are his movies are about addressing the audience, and there's always hmm. this subtext of 
of post like post World War II Ozu is fantastic. Like Late Spring is one of my favorite movies of all time of how this new and anything about um anything about Japanese um pre-war Japanese melding with post-war Japanese uh culture I eat up like like candy. I think all of that stuff is great. It's like this distinct moment in Japanese history where we have the old and the new, and they're all intermingling together. And you can definitely see it. It's right there on the surface, and there's something just exciting about knowing when this is a transition between one generation to another, Um, especially in a movie like Late Spring. I highly recommend checking that movie out. Like if I had to choose between Yasujiro Ozu or uh, Kira Kurosawa as like who is my favorite Japanese uh, director of all time, I would definitely go with Yasujiro Ozu. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I've, I've seen a few of them, and like I said, they kind of just kind of kind of merge into one really, which at the moment is kind of not such a great thing because I sort of I think I need to go there and kind of unpick them a little bit. But um, no, I mean kind of i guess it kind of transitioned back into house is the fact that i mean really it's a type of film that i i think the fact that we're talking about it as something which you know people would never see before and doesn't get made anymore i think that's a great thing to say about a film mm. um i i think if you can make that if you can even think to yourself you know this is unlike anything else i yeah that's a great thing but Going kind of, kind of, kind of, we really, really turn to the thing is, I don't necessarily know that in this case, um, that yeah, it's kind of crazy batshit out there, but also I'm sort of acutely aware of the fact that I, I sometimes think to myself, is the is, is actually the director, I mean, is he kind of has he made this film and thought to, and thought to himself, right, you know, I'm gonna, gonna do, do all these crazy things and. Is he is he going to look at it and then say to himself, right, you know, that's what I set out to achieve. You know, did I really mean to do this? Because I, I, I don't know. I, I sort of feel that the film's sort of making itself up as it goes along a lot of the time. And in a way, I, I, I sort of, I'm trying to get my head around the fact that, you know, was this the film they set out to make or were they trying to sort of make a horror film? Were they trying to make a comedy? I just don't know. I can't pin it down. <laughs> and like, someone like Ozu, he, he sets out and you know exactly what type of film he's going to make. Yeah. He wants to make these kind of meditative kind of takes on human life. And with this, I'm just sort of sat there thinking, well, what? You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't think he's making it up as he goes along. I think this is really what he he set out to make this movie this is exactly the movie he wanted to make um and here's the reasoning behind that if you remember um somewhat late later on in the film uh i I believe they just found out that sweet uh who was attacked by the the futon by the the mattress (laughs) they they found out that she has been turned into a doll and she's gone and (laughs) fantasy uh the really cute you know adorable lovable fantasy she's you know, she's sitting down with the knowledge that her friend is gone and all of her friends are consoling her. And then all of a sudden she like looks up and turns, I, I believe, to the to the left. And all of a sudden there's this guy, like this creepy guy eating a bunch of noodles in her face. <laughs> and you could tell that that's on set. They like they shot that intentionally. The way she looks up, the way that this character who we've never been introduced to before shows up bowl of noodles in her face 
it's weird. Yeah. And then the next scene, we, we see uh, the guy, same guy with a bowl of noodles in this noodle shop somewhere in the city going, good noodles, you know, and just eating them up. Uh, and then it cuts to a bear <laughs> um, dressed like a chef. And then we, we it cuts to Mr. Togo, uh, who, who we catch up with, and he's eating noodles, and he's loving the noodles. Why is that there? Like, that is there because the director wanted that to be there. Look, what kind of that's a great transition, by the way, um, to transition between one thing to another by actually physically having this actor there on set and having this actor that no one's ever seen before interact with the, the characters that we know into the next scene. I, I, that one moment says everything about what this director was trying to do with this movie. And it's unsettling. It, it throws you off. And it, it just goes along with the whole film being a completely fantasy, horror, musical type of thing. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to me, it's, it's the whimsy of it. It's like, who, 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 when they sat down, like, you know, when they're writing it, sit there and you go, right, I'll have a futon eat somewhere. <laughs> and then we'll go from thing. I mean, what, what kind of mind does that? And that's my sort of point about this film. It just feels like, I mean, I'm sure, obviously, it's kind of has structures, but I, I, I just sort of feel like everyone sort of, it's like, oh, yeah, we'll just chuck that in today. I mean, you know. It, it does have that, it does have that feeling for me, at least, where I feel that. Many of the scenes are just, uh, oh, we want to try this experiment. We want to try this type of cutting. And we just, we're going to drag this scene out for minutes on and simply to display some image trickery or simply to have the aunt dance with a skeleton or <laughs> to have her, or to have the cat like dancing on the piano or like scenes that I you can find them funny and you can they sort of set the the mood of it and it's in keep with the entire movie but i just feel like it's it doesn't go anywhere for me it's so excessive and it feels i can't i can't really find the meaning behind it i, I don't feel there's any substance to it it's just i feel it's excessive and it's just style for style's sake well, I mean, the bit that kind of gets me is, I think it's from fantasy when someone, one minute they're smelling knickers and then the next she says something, oh, perhaps your knight in shining armor is going to come get, and it goes into a fantasy film of her being picked up by this kind of guy on a horse. Hmm. And then you kind of see like the title flash up at the end saying the end, and then it kind of, she comes back <laughs> into the real world. And yeah, it's quite, it's quite, I mean, it's amusing for what it is, but I'm still sat there sort of going, you know, what, you know, and you know, obviously people don't do this type of thing. So yeah, it's got that going for it. But on the other hand, I, I sort of think to myself, you know, the joke wears thin, I think, with House after mm. a while. And it, it starts to feel like, I mean, people in horror films anyway, they're so stupid. <laughs> I mean, aren't they really? I mean, everything that says just get out of there, you know, they, they always kind of tend to stick around despite the fact that there's clearly something very, very off. And this, I mean, it doesn't even kind of make any intent. It doesn't even try and explain anything, really. They're just kind of stuck in this house, kind of doing doing kind of crazy stuff. But, I mean... It's that, interesting that's... that you mention, like, the intelligence of the character because that was something that I feel like Cabin in the Woods, a film that it sort of owes homage to this and to films like Evil Dead, which I feel like they're influenced by something like House. But in Cabin in the Woods, I feel like the characters all had... They all had intelligence and the meaning behind the stereotypical stupid characters in horror movies. It was, it was like something. It was a plot point in the film, 
whereas in most horror films they are just stupid for the sake of falling into these sort of traps and situations. Yeah, and I think that's the thing about, I mean, horror out of any other genre, I guess that and uh, romantic comedies, I would say, have to kind Mm. of fall into the same kind of tropes again and again and again for it to be effective. And it's how... It's how they do it, how they, um, how the filmmakers and writers uh, make it believable. Where you you think to yourself, yeah, this is cliche, but it, it it works in this sense. It works in this kind of a movie. I think that's kind of how you distinct the good from the bad. Um, I mean, you take a movie like John Carpenter's The Thing. That's another movie where you know just getting picked off one by one. But you know, you think to yourself, they can't leave because they're in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like that here in house. I mean, they're kind of in the middle of nowhere. It took them a long time to get out there. To they had to take a train, then they had to take a bus, and then they had to walk across that scary bridge. Um, so it took them a while to get there. I mean, Mister uh, Togo, it took him a while to get there, and he, he's he has his own buggy. Um, so I can see why they don't leave the house because you know it took them a while to get there. Where else are they going to go? Well, 100 miles in the opposite direction when the futon starts killing people. I mean, but I mean, the other thing as well, yeah, watch it. I mean, I think it's about almost an hour into the film. I actually thought there was something wrong with my DVD copy because the image suddenly starts stuttering. And I mean, yeah. you, and, and I, and I sort of sat there thinking, and this is another one as well, where I'm sort of being taken out to the film to the point where I'm like, oh shit, you know, the DVD's broken. And then. I'm like actually changing the master cinema version to put the criterion version. And I'm like, what are you? No, it's not actually, it's just the film. And, and that's another thing I'm sort of finding about it. It's I'm getting taken so far out of it. I'm physically actually having to change this <laughs> to work out. If there's something actually wrong with the, and, and when you, when you're doing that in a film, it's like, Oh God, you know what I mean? And I'm starting to find myself sort of thinking, right, you know, this is just beginning to wear it. And that, and then, and then you, you click to see how long's left. And there's like another half hour thinking, Christ, you know, so what 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 next? Are you going to start putting white noise on the soundtrack? So I have to double check the sound's not right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's 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 just such an extreme amount of tonal shifts go on in house that I, I I think it kind of loses to me. I I think it dilutes what it does what it's trying to do quite a lot. But it it did kind of remind me in a way the kind of kind of like this, the way kind of Scream sort of dissected the horror genre. I think this kind of does it through the melodrama of it it's so cringeworthily sort of these kind of really kind of clunky lines and the sort of the you know um what's the lead girl's name again sorry uh gorgeous gorgeous yeah this sort of yeah this the, you know the issues that she's having she might have with her mother and one in a way i think it's kind of perhaps taking the piss a little bit out of that type of filmmaking well i, I think about it and in, in, i mean I, I think that this movie first and foremost is to show off the style. And I think the style is fantastic. Um, and I think about it also like a more contemporary film. Um, well, it's not that contemporary. It's a bit old by this respect. Uh, David Fincher's fight club and David Fincher's fight club also is very manic. It, it, it also, it throws out everything against the wall and sees what sticks in, in terms of its style. I remember when I was watching that movie in theaters for the first time, there's, you know, the shaky David Fincher thing where, you, you think the film is is coming coming off it it's um it's real a little bit and I, I I remember people in the theater thinking there was something wrong with the movie because it was shaking in that way but that's intentional that's the way he wanted to make the movie um, I, I think about it in in that sense with House where 
he is this story isn't very and also like in fight club this story's not as dynamic but he's just throwing everything he can against the wall stylistically to make it a little bit more engaging and i don't think it's any coincidence that david fincher comes from music videos and commercial work as well Hmm. um which why he kind of has that same type of style i always find it interesting when a director a commercial director or a music video director makes a transition into uh movies into feature films just to see what kind of movies they turn out making um i think most recently someone like mark webb who started out making music videos for my chemical romance and um taking back sunday and other emo bands his first film 500 days of summer that movie has style up the wazoo goes from style like different types of realities to to fantasies also michelle gundry comes to mind he comes from music videos where they tell these stories in these small little bursts uh, of style just to i guess keep the audience engaged as much as the directors themselves i think even though we're talking about style there's definitely something of a there is a narrative like social satire and like you were talking about Tom with the distortion or the deconstructing of the melodrama and there's very much about uh, the parent and child relationship throughout the film and just underlying themes of like sex and romance and the superficial nature of their society but uh, the characters I feel that I don't really like any of them especially gorgeous she comes off as like this very spoiled and selfish individual just gets her panties in a crunch when she doesn't get away and then she has to be the the attention center of attention so she can have her friends like all love her and say how cool she is and like sort of look up to her and then her self-esteem is back up again and yeah do you do any of you have that problem with the characters which you know they sort of remind me of and they're kind of like the girls on God Awful, like MTV kind of documentary things. Like, I don't know, like my first teen birthday <laughs> or something or my teenage pregnancy or something like that. And you just watch these kids and they're kind of like, especially I think it's I think it's my sweet 16 I was watching once where you have these like spoiled kids who like they act like tip, stereotypical spoiled kids. I mean, I was watching once where her mum only bought her a Lexus. <sighs> you know, and it it ruined a day, you know. And I'm watching this kid thinking, "You little shitbag," you know what I mean? Like, be grateful. And that that that's how they kind of remind me. And this, they're just these sort of archetypes and stereotypes. Well, their names are archetypal and stereotypes. Yeah. I mean, kung, kung fu for Christ's sake. You know, all she does is, you know, like I said, you know, Melody just plays um, a musical time until obviously the piano decides it's going to uh, chomp her off. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think I don't think we're meant to see them as fully f- kind of. No, but, out characters anyway. No, but it's I, interesting that she, there is an likable character who's the main character, and how are we supposed to? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I, I, I to, be, to be really honest, with you, I didn't really care about any of them. Hmm. If I'm being completely honest, and, and I mean, you know, like I said, I don't even think I don't, I don't even think he's interested in that happening. Yeah, I, I, I don't meant... think he's really interested in like fully fleshing out these characters. I mean, again, they they just have. I mean, their names just say it all. You know, gorgeous, prof, melody, sweet, fantasy. I, I think, I mean, it goes along with my whole uh, belief that th- this is the, the 
old woman's subconscious fighting back against her own personality, like just wanting to be lonely and the threat of loneliness comes in and the house is, you know, you know, her is picking it off one by one by one, just so she could be lonely again, just by herself. Um, and, and I think just the, 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 uh, the actors and, and the names just, go along with that. I mean, again, a lot of them are non-actors. I think a majority of them. I think only two are actual actors in the movie, uh, uh, The Ant and Gorgeous, I believe, but everyone else are non-actors. And it's kind of also telling at the end of the film uh, for the credit sequence, which I love to death, where he's just, he's kind of gazing at Gorgeous, like in the park, like the actual uh, actress or model. And, you know, it's kind of a little pervy, you know, like an old man with a camera looking at this really, you know, a very good looking uh, young woman, you know, in the park with a, a camera. And it just kind of has that tone to it, uh, you know. And again, I mean, the the director comes from commercial work and there's this, you know, veneer of superficiality to it. But I, in a movie like House, I think it absolutely works. I don't think we're this is not the type of movie where we're looking for you know, sub, I mean, uh, deeper meanings in the characters, like what, what their parents were like or what they, what they they did the day before they came to this house. Um, again, first and foremost, I think this movie is, uh, a dazzling film to watch, uh, visually with all these neat little camera tricks. And for, uh, in, in the criterion collection edition of this, we have the director Ty West, who I'm not a very big fan of, who, who loves this film and says that this is uh, the very rare horror film that's also an art film. I think he's absolutely right in that respect, that this is an art film. I mean, this is, if, if Stan Brakhage had the opportunity to make a, a full-length feature film, he'd probably make something like this. Or a little, maybe not as manic, but he'd, he'd definitely make something uh, that wasn't conventional. Yeah, well, I mean, you think, you know, go back to it, you were saying, you know, the idea was, let's make her jewels let's make our version of that film and this is what came of that and you know to <laughs> you don't sort see of, the similarities no, no <laughs> you, you sort of sit and you think whoa you know and um, i mean I, I wonder about this film's kind of impact i mean say kind of like ty west i mean I've, I've i've not actually met anyone who's actually seen it um before and i mean i, I would be kind of quite interesting to sort of you know dig a little deeper on that and kind of how, how high it's regarded because I, I i'm still i think i'm undecided whether it's it's i, I know it's well made and, and just a quick a quick side actually if you listen to this film as well the soundtrack and the sound design is insane as well i mean you have <laughs> kind of like birds you can hear birds like crowing and things like that or the sea but there's, well, the, the, you can't even you can't see it at all, I, you know, and it's just like, I, I love, there's this one moment really early on in the movie before the girls actually go into the house and they're just looking around in this like garden and then the, 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 these two birds fly by across the, the, the screen and they're obviously fake you know birds on wires that are going across the screen and I believe it's um, sweet that says huh and then it cuts to the next scene that's just it's a crazy moment in in the movie a, a crazy moment in a movie full of crazy moments uh like watching this movie in preparation for this episode i i i saw that i'm like i i never really noticed that before i'm like what is that doing here but it kind of fits <laughs> yeah i mean i mean i mean there's some laugh at most i mean there's a bit where i think severed fingers are playing the piano and then the kind of the cover on the piano slams down there's just this massive explosion of blood yeah, and, and also in that scene where uh, 
Melody realizes I don't have fingers, and it cuts to Fantasy, who's by the the strange uh, goldfish bowl, and then her eyes just go out. Her eyes just go crossed for no reason. I'm like, what is this? But I kept, I had to keep rewinding it because it's just so funny to me. I was reading uh, reviews for this film uh, in preparation for this recording, and I feel like not that. uh, I feel like your opinion of this film is you, you explained it very well. The reviews I've read, they they basically go along this line of it's just so crazy and it's just so saney and you've never seen anything like it. They never go any deeper than that. And I feel that like you you can go deeper as you've explained now, but many of the reviews out there, they seem to like hold it on this, just this insane movie that is so cool and you, you give it five stars automatically. Yeah, I think that's the... Honestly, that, I think that's the hardest part about being a, a film critic or a film blogger, which is why I don't really uh, write as many reviews as, as I used to. I'm more on the blogging opinion side of the uh, film world than actually mm. uh, writing uh, film criticism. It's hard. People think, oh, it's so easy. to You're just writing about movies. It's hard to come up with an opinion about a movie that you just feel lukewarm about. Mm. Uh, it's hard to come up with an opinion for a movie like this, just the first time watching it. Like, what do you make of a movie like this, except that it's crazy, off the wall, something you've never seen before? Um, precisely what you just what you just said. So very early reviews or just reviews in general of this movie just watching that once is what you're going to have is just people saying stuff like this is a crazy movie. Uh, I think it's only deeper when you go into like reading essays about the movie, not, not so much reviews, uh, like actual mm-hmm. film criticism of like deeper think pieces of this movie where you get to the, the nitty gritty, the, the bones of the movie more so than just the, the general review. Um, I mean, I struggle with that all the time. I mean, how do you come up with a review for, a, a movie that's it's all right it's it's not good but it's not bad and it's all right like you have to come up with 800 words about that yeah no definitely i mean it's one of the things i i i think it's the sign of a good critic when you can talk as passionately and for as long and as eloquently about a film you hate as much as one that you love and it's certainly something i mean i've i've done it on, on my other podcast but sometimes when we talk about charlie chapman films and the criterion collection in fact, actually, uh, there is going to be an exception um, to that in my next episode. But for the most part, I hate Charlie Chaplin films, and I've really sort oh, of... Oh, wow. I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. I've, I've, I've always sort of like... I, I've gone to review and I'm like, you know what, I just can't be bothered. I, just I mean, I don't know anyone who says they hate Charlie Chaplin films. I mean... Well, you it, until <laughs> I saw... Uh, you don't uh, like laughing? Film, <laughs> no, I don't find them funny. I, 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 yeah. I, 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 I say this sometimes, and people mistake me as being incredibly miserable... He, but it takes a lot to make me laugh. I mean, you, I mean, like even not even laughing, but like uh, technical achievement. Like there's a scene. Oh, oh, in... Oh no, 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 no. Yeah, no, no. Technical wise, yeah, I can see it. But I it's mean, there, like, there's a I... scene in um, what was it? Uh, Modern Times, where he's in the one that always sticks out in my mind, where he is um, in some sort of a shopping mall or something or some department store, and he's on roller skates and he's blindfolded, and then he just you know he's teetering off the edge of of this this floor like it's it just kind of breaks off and he might fall at any moment and realizing that he did this like on set as you as he was you know just shooting it this way that he can fall at any moment the, there's just something great about that <laughs> oh no 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 don't get me wrong definitely you know the technical side of things and you know all that but i, I yeah they just fall flat i don't find the humor funny um, until I watched uh, Michelle Vendu, which I'll be talking about quite soon on the on, on the 24 Frames Plus. But yeah, and it's 
his, his eyes were conflicted, you know, because sometimes you want to kind of talk. I'm itching. To, I mean, I, I did an episode on Man of Steel, an, another film which I hated, and I was able to kind of go on for about an hour on that. But I think it's a, I think that is what why film criticism becomes an art, really, because hmm. I can only do that with Man of Steel because I planned to do the episode anyway, you know, and I just thought, right, yeah, I've, I've done it. I've, well, I've I'm, watched I'm it. talking about movies that are just painfully mediocre or they're like oh, right, right, not yeah. good or bad. I mean, I, I didn't like Man of Steel either. I think it's not a very good movie, but... I can definitely write passionately about why that this movie is bad, but how do you write passionately about a movie that's all right? You know, that's just three out of five. Yeah, that's yeah. just like no, oh, it's 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 not good, but it's not bad. Like, how do you write about something like I that? Mean, well, like Oblivion would be a good example of that, where I just said, <laughs> I was like, God, this film is so painfully average. It is, it hurts it almost. <laughs> I can I can appreciate it for how it looks. Again, I think it might suffer from house syndrome. Really, I can certainly appreciate how it looks and you know technical aspect of it but for the most part it just seems to kind of leave me kind of strangely flat i suppose is there anything else anyone else wants to kind of talk about rudy uh well uh, i i think this this movie um should be highlighted in some way like I'm, I'm glad this movie turned up in the criterion collection otherwise i wouldn't have found it i mean i think about that like, what would my life be like without a movie like House? You know, like, what? how many dates have I been on where I talked about this strange movie? Um, Can I just make a recommendation? Never, ever show this to anyone you're seeing early on in your relationship because I think they're going to think you're mental. <laughs> if you say, like, check, check this out. It's one of the best, like, check this out. You know, it, it's, it's one of my favorite films. I think they'll be like, oh, my God. What if, uh, well, if they do turn around and love it, I think you should propose instantly. But I mean, um, you, you <laughs> well, know, I mean it's like... I, I've had a good track record with House, you know, since I discovered it a couple years ago. It's And this movie, they one of the theaters here in New York, the IFC Center, uh, where they, it's an amazing, like, art house theater here in New York. They showed this movie every Halloween. You know, <laughs> really cool. Since, um, well, for the past three years, since um, Janice bought the rights to it, uh, to distribute it in the, in the States. Um, and so every Halloween, at least for the past three years, I always show up for the, this, this, uh, for the screening of house, because you're, you're going to have people in the audience who know exactly what this movie is. And you're going to have people in the audience thinking it's going to be some great horror movie, like, uh, the evil dead or, you know, uh, the thing or something that they're going to be horrified and grossed out and when this movie comes on you you get this mixed reaction of like what is this movie like it's kind of funny it's kind of not and it's it's one of the best experiences watching it in a theater full of people who either like that half know the movie or and the other half just don't know what it is but if so this is definitely a movie that i talk about on on dates with women that I go out with, uh, you know, before sunrise is, is, is a good staple. Nine songs, the Michael Winterbottom film is another staple that I have. Um, so, and, and I'm glad that, uh, masters of cinema, the criterion collection, you know, would highlight a movie like this where it's, it's definitely not, you know, breathless. It's not the 400 blows. It's not seven samurai, but I think it's, it's the kind of movie that should be highlighted in that same way that if I, if I was a film teacher, if I was a film professor in college, I would definitely show movies like the 400 blows. Uh, and I would show movies like house, you know, I, I, I think there's something important to show, um, the fun side of, 
of art films, you know, that not all art films have to be really uh, serious or uh, self-serious and dramatic and, and slow and laborious, which uh, as great as a lot of movies in the Criterion Collection are, I mean, let's admit it. I mean, they're, you know, you're not going to put this movie on in a Friday night, you know, <laughs> uh, time at the bar. So I'm glad a movie like um, House uh, is in something like the Criterion Collection. Yeah, I mean, this is something you, you, we were discussing on another episode with Joachim, which is the sort of the fact that I, I, I hate snobbery in film criticism. I, I you know, t- to me, something like you know, The Evil Dead, it deserves to be looked at um, in the same way people look at, you know, more highbrow stuff. To me, you know, film's a film. Does it accomplish, really, what it sets out to do? And, you know, is it you know, technically proficient and whatnot? And um, I, I, it's something that you know, particularly frustrates me when the you know, film snobbery. And I think House is a film which kind of kicks the doors in a film snobbery, really. And sort of <laughs> like, like when we've just been discussing over the course of this episode, it's, it is crazy. You know, it's a, a well-made, crazy film and it does exactly what it wants. So, you know, I, I think what other film can you watch where a futon attacks someone? And I think there's a the bit near the end where like a thermos flask with teeth starts biting someone coming <laughs> yeah. out of the water. I mean, you know, what, what, you know all right, it's, it, it's not something you see every day, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, it, it's crazy fun, I suppose, and, uh, you know, get, take out of it what you will. I mean, Joachim, what are your kind of, like, final thoughts on it all? Well, uh, crazy, I'd agree with fun, I wouldn't agree with, but I think that it definitely, I mean, I, I'm not to say it deserves a place or doesn't deserve a place in the Criterion Collection or Masters of Cinema because they made their choice, but I think it definitely brings something to the table with its completely out-of-the-box experience and it's just something that you you need to experience to be able to say if you like it or don't like it. I don't think you can listen to other people's opinions on it. You have to experience it for yourself and make your own conclusions and that's definitely something that is a strong suit in this film that you you won't have you won't have a experience you won't have something like this without experiencing this film you won't be able to make up your mind before you see it because you have never seen anything like this you will never see anything like this ever again and it's just a film that you you don't know what you're going to see and you just have to you have to experience it as i said yeah yeah, just go along with it. And I think that's, yeah, the best way to kind of go in with House. Um, certainly, I think that's why my first viewing was like so, because, like I said, I went in with expectations of seeing, of thought I was going to see like a horror film, and it clearly wasn't at all. And it, hmm. it, it sort of kind of took a degree of kind of like retuning to what the film was. And when the film is this so left field, and you're not really quite sure what you're seeing in the first place, I think it's, it might be, I think it's a film I, I do intend on going back to, um, not for a while, I have to be honest with you. Um, I might try it as a kind of a, trying to look intelligent on a date like Rudy does. I think the simplicity of, of the story only helps the, the manic, uh, the manicness of, of house. Otherwise, if it was something that's really complex, something that's like a character study, you would kind of uh, miss out on how visually stunning and amazing, uh, what a technical feat this movie is. Which is why, like, when I think about movies like, uh, again, the Michael Bay Transformer movies, when the the, the very the very best of them, <laughs> the very best of them are are simple, and the ones that are overly complicated, um, namely the first two, 
in that series is is kind of where you know you're not really you're you're kind of lost and you're, you're like you're thinking about it in terms of like this is not a good story and therefore this is not a good movie um transformers dark of the moon is a very simple story and the best thing about it is the last hour of the movie is just nothing but straight up action um michael bay uh does something like that very well and if if he can make a movie that's all action that's like from top to bottom action like uh like the raid or something then i think that movie could be his masterpiece like uh house is uh habuku obayashi's masterpiece I think that's, to be honest, yeah, I, I, I think that's a pretty good place to kind of end this episode. Um, anything else anyone wants to add to the equation? Um, I don't own the Massive Cinema DVD. Um, do you have any uh, notes on it? Or Yeah, I do. I mean, it's actually for, um, it's obviously not the Blu-ray version, but I mean, it's a, a, a pretty decent print of it, actually. Um, it's a good, um, sometimes actually, I, I forget when I go back and I watch DVDs sometimes. I think, God, the DVD's good. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's this thing where we come from. With, I mean, I, I actually had the pleasure of watching all the watching a VHS a few weeks ago, and my jaw was on the floor. What was wrong with us? You know, all the things we could have gone and protested about, and we, you know, VHS was awful. I mean, I mean, truly god awful. And I was like, thank God, how many of you said that? When I was watching you know, House on the um, on DVD, I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a really good print. Actually, that's a really good, you know quality image and it's got a good 90 minute documentary on it as well um it's got a, a new transfer as well an anamorphic transfer and uh, yeah i was i was really actually impressed with it. i do own the criterion dvd as well i've not seen the blu-ray have you you guys on that i own the blu-ray criterion collection yeah uh, i mean what, what, what did you see on rudy uh the criterion dvd right what's the what's the blu-ray like uh I think it looks great. Um, I don't have uh, the dvd to compare it to but from what i've read the dvd is uh, quite good as well yeah, I mean, I wonder if this will be one that Master Cinema are going to go back to and do an upgrade for. Um... I hope not. <laughs> well, I, 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 this, this movie's a bestseller as well, yeah. you know, so, you know, I, I think there's also a reason why the Criterion Collection has yeah. movies like Armageddon and The Rock and, and and like the Wes Anderson movies. And not to say that the Wes Anderson movies are, are bad, but those are the bestsellers, you know, yeah. and the more you have movies like House and... And Armageddon, the more you can bring in more movies like, you know, Breaking the Waves or something. Like, who's itching to buy that Lars von Schur movie? <laughs> Do you know, I would genuinely love to know, like, the sales figures for, like, Criterion and Masters Cinema to see which ones, you know, are the really big sellers. Uh, I believe for um, the Criterion collection, I believe Armageddon and the Royal Tenenbaums are their top right. two sellers. God. I think oh, I read on the, the Blu-ray.com forum or criterionforum.org. I think they posted uh, sales figures for Massive Cinema based on Amazon.com sales, at least. Right. But uh, I can't remember which one was the top seller. No, no, no. No, no it's, it's, it could genuinely... I'm kind of, yeah, I'd genuinely be interested to know, you know how many kind of you know, copies they shift and you know, that kind of thing. Hmm. Because, um, yeah... It's, you, you, I mean, I, I go over to my Tesco uh, mega store over the road and buy a load of Blu-rays. They will never, ever stock anything like this. And in Manchester, I mean, there's only one shop in Manchester that stocks uh, Masters. Well, actually, there's, there's two, but one that kind of does the whole catalogue. The other one might have, like, a couple. stuff. And they, they are quite hard to get hold of a lot of the time. And obviously, um, not so much you, Rudy, but um, me and Joachim have to suffer um, importing <laughs> our criterions over. So. Oh, wow. There's, um, yeah, there's many... Since Criterion is based in New York, 
Um, the the Barnes and Noble, the Barnes and Noble is a bookstore. I'm not yeah. sure if they have. I'm yeah, yeah. be an ignorant American and say, "Do you guys have that where you guys are?" Um, <laughs> we, but we, we, we have bookstores. Book <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have bookstores where you are? You know, oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be the ignorant <laughs> I mean, American the in that respect. But um, the the Barnes and Noble next to where the Criterion offices are has the biggest selection of Criterion DVDs and Blu-rays you'll ever see. Like it, it has like everything that's in print. And like four or five copies of each. <laughs> um, oh, nice. it, it, it's pretty pretty awesome. So um, just so when they do those fifty uh, percent sales off, I'm assuming you're in there like a shop. Uh, yeah, you know when I have some money, you know uh, I go in there. Um, it's uh, yeah when I, when I have some money, and they they only have the fifty percent sales like twice twice a year. But yeah, I'm definitely in that Barnes and Noble. No, okay, guys. Well, um, Rudy, where can we find more of you on the internet? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Rudy underscore Obias. That's R-U-D-I-E underscore O-B-I-A-S. Autorcast.com, Shakya.com, GiantFreakingRobot.com, and MentalFloss.com. And everything that is Rudy, you, know, you can find at RudyObias.com. Yo, Kim, what about us? Uh, you can find us at uh, moccast.blogspot.com. You can email us at mossofcinemacast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Tumblr. You can just search for Masters of Cinemacast. Brilliant. And you can find me at 24framescast on Twitter and at 24framescast.blogspot.com. Rudy, thank you very much for coming on board with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Oh, thank, thanks for having me. And uh, we will be back with a new episode soon. Many thanks for listening and we'll be back. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.